is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Mundia DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandal. Hi, this is Lee Bermeo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. And this is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Spertaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 58. I'm your host, Dustin, and today we have with us... This is Zach. And this is Don. And we are bringing the latest comic news from the past two weeks, as well as nine comic book reviews. A little bit of uh, news, only two things to go over, specifically because it's the holidays, and of course there's not going to be a ton of stuff. We're going to be light on news this cast, we're going to be probably light on news the next cast as well. But, like I said, there are two things. So the very first thing we have is on December 20th, the March solicitations were made available by DC Comics, and there was a little bit of interesting news to come out of the solicitations, as it appears three series will come to an end in March. According to the solicitations, Azrael, Batman Confidential, and Batman Streets of Gotham will all have their final issues released in March. The surprise of the bunch, in my opinion, is Batman Streets of Gotham, which has stayed consistently in the middle of the sales charts. So, yeah, good riddance. I kind of was expecting if Streets of Gotham was going to get canceled that maybe even more books would get canceled, um, but it doesn't look like that. I'm not surprised with Asriel or Batman Confidential. Asriel definitely seems like it's heading in the direction of a book that's going to be ending pretty soon. I'm just glad that DC has kind of recognized that they've kind of overloaded us with Batman titles, and now they're maybe picking a few that, that need to go. Because quite frankly, in Batman Confidential's case, that book should have been canceled a long time ago. But, you know, it is unfortunate nonetheless. Yeah, I agree. Um, definitely Azrael and Confidential. I saw those going. I was surprised at how long they went already. Uh, Streets of Gotham. Uh, I I think it wouldn't have been canceled if Dean was more um, more on the books more, and also if the storyline had been a little quicker. I mentioned in the past how sometimes it seems like nothing's going on, so that doesn't surprise me. But it is a shame because I think that could have been a really good book. But you know there are too many Batman titles, so uh, it is all good news. My opinion on this is Azrael. Um, as we get to the review a little later in the show, we'll, you'll find out uh, kind of going in a direction where most likely Michael Lane isn't even going to be around anymore. Batman Confidential, you heard my review of, of issue number 50. The art was good, but the story was kind of junky, and they tried charging you extra money just for something that had nothing to do with Batman. So when a book that's supposed to be a Batman book has a story in it that has nothing to do with Batman, that's about the time you know this, this book's got to go. And uh, as far as Streets of Gotham, I, Dustin Wenzar, the entire time. I never had any issues with it. The issue that I had with the book was the fact that we'd have Dini step off the book and they wouldn't get a... They wouldn't have a fill-in writer. They would have the backup feature take over more of it. And you'll hear more about that when we get to this month's uh, review of Batman Streets of Gotham. But the, the big thing is, I think this book has suffered because it was solicited originally as something that was supposed to... A, a book that was supposed to cover different people with Inside Gotham. And the reality of it is... Besides the co-feature, the book has very little to do with the people of Gotham um, other than Batman. Um, and that's that's just what's been going on. 
and it's mainly just it's the villains. Sad. Yeah, it's not. It's not yeah. really like the the GCPD or anything. It's mainly just like one-off villains and Hush. That's pretty much who are carrying the book. Yep. Yeah. This is basically Hush's uh, Hush's series. That's that's what it's become with uh, Batman as a uh, backup character and the uh, co-feature really being in some cases the uh, the bulk of the the issue. So. Yeah, Streets of Gotham for me the biggest problem was that it was mismarketed. It it really should have been marketed as Paul Dini continuing his run from Detective Comics whenever he feels like doing it. It, it just I think a lot of people were expecting another Gotham Central or something similar to it being written by Paul Dini and they didn't get it and they were turned off by that because really the the beginning of the book I think was kind of a rocky start, you know. That's unfortunate. Confidential has just been hasn't has had an inconsistent history from the beginning, so I've thought that needs to go a while ago. All right, so let's get into our last bit of news from December twenty second. Uh, Comic book resources posted a new segment of their bat signal, and this time they talked with Scott Snyder, uh, as we know, the current writer of Detective Comics. So I will read for Comic Book Resources, and Zach will read for Scott Snyder. One of the big reveals that hit in your first issue of Detective was the implication that James Gordon Jr. has returned to the Bat universe. Despite his prominent role in Year One, he has been largely unseen since then, and his ultimate fate has been unknown for years. When you pitch DC using the character, what was the response? Was there some reason that Thread was left dangling for so long? No, I think everybody was sort of like, oh, there was really no resistance to it. In one of those weird ways, I think there was another story that somebody else had once worked on that brought him in and in, in a minor way. But for the most part, it's one of those things where after 20 years of being retired, just like Lord Deathman from Batman Inc., he's back from the vault. DC was really supportive, though they were definitely a little nervous at first when I explained my take on him. I do want him to be somebody that you're guessing about all along with Jim for a while in the series. I didn't want him to just come in and be a villain or be knowable. He's been away for so long, the tease of understanding him again the way Jim is trying to since he hasn't seen him in so long is part of what the story's about. And I want it to be almost a mystery in and of itself. Is he as bad as Barbara thinks he is? You'll see her in the next issue, and he's one of the few people she's genuinely frightened of. Or is he somebody who's just troubled? He's come back to Gotham with intentions he's going to make very clear. And you'll believe in him, or you don't. You'll see how it all plays out as the run goes on. An idea creeping around the story is that even though we've been seeing Dick as Batman for almost two years now, we don't see much about his family. In Bruce Batman stories, we're constantly revisiting Crime Alley and unpacking his parents' murder. That hasn't been a piece of Dick's era yet, but you hint on that in the first issue. Will we be coping with the idea more as you go along? I don't know how much I want to give away about it, but in this particular story we'll touch on it. And I've been talking about another story that goes beyond that one we're doing right now that really, really minds that stuff. It sort of examines why Dick thinks and talks about it so little. What impacts him about that time in his life and some of the secrets from before he became Robin. So I have every interest and intention of focusing on that. This first run with Jock and Francisco is going to be a bit more on him in the present and coming to terms with him becoming the Batman of Gotham. All right, so that's the end of that interview. You know, needless to say, after the first issue, Scott Snyder can pretty much do a lot of different things as he goes on with this series, and uh, I, I have confidence in it. I, I'm not going to say I back it 100% because I still haven't read the second issue because it's not out yet, but uh, I definitely have to say uh, the, if the first issue is any inclination of what we're going to be seeing, at least in his 12 issues that he's got planned, I think uh, Detective Comics is in good hands. 
Yeah, I agree. I'm not 100%, you know, campaigning for Scott Snyder yet because I've only one read one issue of his Batman run, but that one issue was pretty good and I I I have full potential because when I read these interviews, he seems like he has this all mapped out in his head already, which is very important. I think sometimes writers get in there, know what they're going to do at first. Everything kind of warps into something else over time. But I think he's got a pretty clear path set for him, which is important. I, I also like the fact that he says the background of putting James Jr. in the books, everyone was like taken aback. And that's exactly the kind of re- reaction and response you would hope after such a minor character, but it's such a pivotal character. Uh, and Batman Year One has come back, so I, I'm very excited to see where this is going. And it seems like Zach says he has this all planned out, so I'm pretty, I'm pretty optimistic as well. All right, so that is all the news we have. So that's going to get us right into our comic reviews. We've got, like I said, we've got nine issues to cover, so we're going to get right into them. Our first book is Birds of Prey number seven. Hey! Batman throws his batarang. What a weapon! What a bang! Check out that utility belt. Sure can make a girl's heart melt. He's always right there for the save. I'd like to see his secret cave. Well, Batman does things in his special way. He do it better with the birds of prey. Well, Batman always seems to save the day. No one does it better. No one does it better than the birds of prey. Birds of Prey number 7, written by Gail Simone, illustrated by Adrian Saif. This issue opens up with a calculator meeting Savant in order to find out and destroy Oracle. We come back to Oracle in an alley. She is accosted by a bunch of drug addicts, and while she takes care of them pretty quickly, one lands between her legs, incapacitating her to the point where she gets held up at gunpoint. But luckily, Bruce Wayne, aka Batman, comes in to save her. Oracle expects him to give her the hard treatment and saying how she should have been more careful, but instead he offers her a hug. Before we see them hug, however, we cut back to the rest of the birds at a nearby strip club. Um, those birds being Huntress, Lady Blackhawk, Dove, and Black Canary. We, we learn that it's Dove's birthday, and outside Hank Hall, aka Hawk, is about to give her a birthday present and a letter saying how gracious and grateful he is for her but he decides to chicken out and not give it to her at all, after all. Then we go to the calculator on top of a rooftop where he meets a woman named Mortis, who is revealed to have to give to other people a serious case of guilt and regret to the point where they, where they become suicidal. And calculator plans for, the, for her to go up against Oracle this way. Back inside uh, an underground bunker, we see that Batman has a list of people he wants to be used in Batman Incorporated, including Dinah Lance, the, the rest of the Birds of Prey, uh, Charlotte Gage Radcliffe, aka Misfit, James Gordon, and Creote and Savant. Oracle introduces him, to, introduces him to Creote and says that soon enough, Oracle will die once and for all. Back at the strip club, the birds are attacked by Mammoth, a member of the Hive, and other supervillains, and Dawn is unconscious after having passed out after only one glass of beer. Before she awakes, the birds are accosted by Mortis, and she asks, where is the soon-to-be-deceased party girl, Oracle? And that is Birds of Prey number seven. All right, so Birds of Prey number seven. I, I don't know what the what the best way to put this is. I don't understand what the, the need for putting people odd predicaments where there's some kind of sexual reference that needs to be made. We've seen in the past, specifically in the past issues, Huntress splashing water on somebody on another woman's pants and saying, oh, you got wet pants. In this issue, we have people, all the birds going to a male strip club 
and then making comments about how they're shaking things in their faces and stuff like that. I'm not really <laughs> understanding what what the what the idea behind this is. Like, I think is this, I think is DC thinks uh, we're all horny fanboys and fangirls. I guess so, yeah. and I guess they're they're trying to even it out. You know, the last issue they had stuff about girls. I guess they do the things about guys. This issue, it just seems a little ridiculous. Um, I'm interested to see where the story goes, but not having anything to do with anybody but Oracle. That's that's the issue that I'm running into here. I'm not really interested in any of the birds and what's going on. I'm interested in knowing what's going on with Oracle and what she has planned and. The fact that Oracle is going to die and she's creating this new persona that that interests me. But the whole side story, which really is the should be the main story, since the book is called Birds of Prey, involving all of the birds, is getting a little ridiculous with all these innuendos that are completely unnecessary. So with that, I'm going to give this book two out of five batterings. Yeah, Dustin mentioned it. The cheesecake in this book is just so horrible sometimes, and it's like, and then. It does that, and then it tries to, like, be real serious in, like, this significant story when we just got done having these, like, horribly cheesecakey moments that aren't even really entertaining, which I think is has been a main problem with me in this book. Um, but Adrian Sayef, I thought, was pretty – did a pretty solid job here. I think the, the main problem I had with it was that a lot of these characters have very inaccurate and strange – portions to their bodies and it it becomes distracting especially some of the the character male character designs for some reason he made them look way too big or something um but overall i thought the artwork was solid um i thought the thing with dove's birthday was totally pointless i do not know what where any significance was in that sequence i thought it was an okay written issue uh i thought the inner monologue opening with oracle was a good way to start off this arc I just didn't feel like, you know, this is supposed to be Oracle's going to die or whatever, but I'm going to need to see a lot more from this arc, and it is only one issue, to convince me that she is really going to quote-unquote die, which I just don't buy at that at this point. Um, I did like that a lot of these characters seem to have, like, their own personal agendas going on, and this seems like a story arc that's going to involve a lot of betrayal, um, which, if it's handled right, could be very interesting. So, overall, this was okay. I'll give it two and a half out of five batterings. I have mixed feelings on this issue as well. I really like the arts. The art I thought was very, um, very well done by Adrian Syeth. Um and I like kind of like how the story is paced. I like how quick jump cuts between different characters, between Calculator and Oracle and Batman, car passing by, and um, I, I, I like the general feel of the story. I agree that like the birds, I'm quickly losing interest in like every every member of the Birds of Prey except for Cole. I, I they just, they, I mean, I don't really, I never really liked Huntress. Um, I was, I had no opinion on Black Canary, but these characters. Are here. I know they're just having fun, you know. I know girls go to male strip clubs when they feel like it, but I don't know. It's not very endearing, and I felt that it was just kind of like pointless, like uh, Dustin and Zachary said. And since it was since that was half the story, it kind of I don't know, kind of dunked it up for me. So I'm giving it. I will, I will too give it a two and a half out of five better ranks. All right, so that is going to get Birds of Prey number seven, two and a half out of five better ranks. Wait, you could die. At least tell me your name. It's not who I am underneath, but what I do that defines me. Bruce? Since 
move into our next book, which is Batman number 705, written and drawn by Tony Daniel. Uh, the book starts off exactly uh, where we left off, but it starts off with a flashback of the resurrection of Ra's al Ghul, where the Sensei is killed and Batman lives because of the Fountain of Life. Once Batman is taken away by the monks, it turns out that the Sensei is actually brought back to life by someone. And then we cut to present day, where we see Peacock and Batman fighting the Sensei, and Batman's trying to figure out why exactly Sensei is after the Peacock's brother. Well, as it turns out, the reason being is because Peacock's brother is actually a telepath, and he knows about something which we'll get into a little later. So, what happens is uh, Batman and Peacock steal a bunch of horses, and they uh, travel off to go find her, uh, Peacock's brother, Lukey. Back at the uh, Batcave, Alfred uses his satellite to find the limo that had Lukey in it, and it appears that the limo has blown up. Peacock and Batman both are convinced that that's not the case, that Lukey was not inside of the vehicle, and I Ching appears. And I Ching starts to shed a little bit of light onto why exactly Sensei is after. He tells a nice little story about this mask, uh, the Mask of the Beholder. And essentially what happens is this mask, it basically causes insanity and causes the person wearing the mask to not only kill everyone around them, but also kill themselves. An archaeologist finds this mask after coming across someone who escaped from the village who was dying, finds the masks and bring it back to Gotham. He belongs to a society known as the Jade Compass Society, and he tells them about all about the mask and tells them that he's... Uh, the mask has been talking to him and telling him to kill himself. He tells them the secret about the mask and they decide to hide it within the construction of Gotham City. Back in present time, I Ching, Batman, and Peacock are at a scrap metal graveyard where they are watched, they're looking at a bunch of drawings made by Peacock, but uh, they're images that were made, that, that were sent to her through the mind by Luki. Uh, we then see Luki who is talking to the Sensei and Luki, and Sensei is pretty much beating the crap out of him, telling him he wants to know where exactly the mask is, because he knows that he knows where the mask is. We then cut back to Peacock, Batman, and I Ching, where he finds out that the uh, the mask was inside of a was inside of a building that uh, was blown up a couple days prior, and someone else was killed. Uh, at the same time, Peacock has an enormous amount of pain come over her that is sent to her telepathically through Lukey. Batman goes to see a murder, goes to a murder scene, uh, meets up with Commissioner Gordon to find out. Turns out the person could have been somebody in the J Jade Compass Society. Batman then finds out that the best option is to go to Lucius Fox because that's where everything's pointing to. It seems as if Lucius Fox might be hiding something. When he goes there, he finds a number of uh, people taking out somebody and he finds these little balls in a desk, blinds him and deafens him and he falls out a window and when he w opens his eyes he sees nobody else than the Riddler introducing him introducing Batman to his daughter Enigma and that is the end of that issue all right so Batman 705 overall this was a good issue uh, the art was great I think there might have been a little, a little bit more splash pages than what we really needed to see but uh, I'm not going to complain about a splash page that's for sure I think Tony Daniel is really starting to get a handle on 
what he's trying to do. And as long as he doesn't fall behind or get sick like he did when he was on Batman before, I don't think Tony Daniels is going to be having any issues with this book. Um, he's telling an interesting story. I'm I'm generally interested in what's going on, what's going to pl- how everything is going to play out. I am kind of uh, curious to know uh, if Tony Daniel has been having lunch with Paul Dini and they've been coming up with ideas of how to create more and more new characters because that's all they ever seem to do. But uh, I like the story, so uh, I'll give him that. I like the art, so I'm going to give this one uh, three and a half out of five batterings. I think it's pretty safe to assume that Tony Daniels' artwork is at least pretty good every time out, and it, it is here. I think he's really becoming the premier artist on the bad titles, and hopefully his improved style is something that will remain consistent. I like this story. I think all the characters here, you know, it's pretty clear what their motivations are and why they are involved. Um, no Catgirl in this issue, which was a huge positive for me. Um, and I really enjoyed the Deadly Mask black backstory that's going on. I thought that was really interesting. I did have a couple problems, though. One is, it's so blatantly obvious that I Ching and Peacock are clearly using Batman. And that's fine when you have 22 minutes to tell a story like the Batman animated series, which they used to do that all the time. It's like, how did you know? Well, you see, I first suspected when. But when you have... 24 pages an issue to do that. I wish I we would get some more explanation, you know, when I expect Batman to realize that they're using him, which I, I'm i sure he probably already knows. And it just seems like there's just going to be this huge double cross coming up. And I do like that vibe. I think that's really entertaining. I do think that this is probably the most ambitious story arc that Tony Daniel has ever undertaken during his tenure on the title, and I'm curious to see how he handles it and plays everything out. And because it was Tony Daniel, I kind of expected us to see the Riddler at some point. He clearly has some sort of uh, fondness of that character. Um, But I was a little surprised that he shows up at the end of the issue, because we see these exploding bombs with uh, question marks on them, and I go, what? And then the next thing you know, the Riddler and, and his daughter Enigma, who we saw in Final Crisis, are here, which... Okay, I don't know what her role is, but the thing that worries me about this is that he's he's done this before. He's he's beginning to really juggle a lot of characters at once, and it, it's very hard to do that. The one thing that I will say, though, is I like that he has all of Batman's supporting cast playing a role in this arc. I mean, we see Alfred here doing something. We see Commissioner Gordon doing something. Lucius Fox has some significant part of this, all of this. We even see Harvey Bullock. They all make appearances, and in this title, I think that's the way it should be, so I really enjoyed that. I just worried that it's it's starting to get bit cluttered with characters but overall i did like this i'll give this also three and a half out of five batterings i like this too i thought that yeah i agree this is a this feels more like a batman story in terms of it has um it has all the supporting characters it has all all villains and everything it just felt it felt more coherent than his last arc did and the ending really really shocked me i gotta say because with when enigma kicked him out of the building and it was revealed it was really was back i was like i don't know i i, I, was, I was excited but at the same time i was like like what the heck i had very mixed feelings but um it was definitely definitely engaging so um i'm not gonna say much more i think everything else has been said by zach so i'll give it uh three and a half out of five veterans all right, and on the website, Dane gave it five out of five batterings. So that is going to give Batman number 705 three and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Batman and Robin number 18. The night, a silent crusader carries the torch of justice. 
evil hearts beware, for out of the darkness comes the Grey Ghost. Tonight's episode, The Mad Bomber. Batman and Robin number 18, written by Paul Cornell, with artwork by Scott McDaniel. The issue opens with the absence asking Batman and Robin if they are surprised that the villain has turned out to be Una Nemo herself. Unfortunately, she is disappointed to learn that they are not at all surprised, and this leads her to shoot a rocket launcher up into the rafters of the church where Dick and Damien were hiding, and they follow the ground along with all the rubble and soon are in the clutches of the absence. Una Nemo then begins explaining to Dick and Damien her past relationship with Bruce Wayne and how she ended up with the hole in her head, um, where we see that Bruce didn't let her get too close, and this led to their breakup, and then cut to her explaining all of this to a friend on a yacht. When her friend is shot and killed by a man who climbs aboard shouting, this is a robbery, Una fights back, and he shoots her in the head, sending her falling off the boat into the river. However, while much of it is a blur, she remains alive, believing the pollution in the river did something to the wound. And when she returns to shore, she sees that she has been pronounced dead by the public. And she did not, decides to keep Gotham thinking that she is dead, where she even goes as far to attend her own funeral while being unnoticed. But at the funeral, she notices that people aren't really upset, and Bruce Wayne was not in attendance. And she uses her ability to steal back her fortune, which, with hopes that with Bruce founding Batman Inc. now, he would look into her case. However, he never did, and this leads her to recruiting a team and purchasing goods, leaving a trail for him to follow, but he still never does. We cut back to present time where Nemo is looking for some sympathy from the dynamic duo, however she doesn't get it. She then begins to walk out, detonating a small bomb which causes a fire to spread within the church. It reminds them that until Bruce notices her again, she will continue to remind him, and Batman and Robin are able to fight off the henchmen and escape the church. We then cut to the Bat Bunker where Bruce is on the phone while he is still in Japan when he is updated on the Una Nemo situation. Bruce tells Dick to tell Una he knows now and tells him to let her know how sorry he is, but he is unable to return to Gotham, but trusts Dick's judgment in resolving the situation. We then cut to Vicky Vale, who is in her apartment when Una and Nemo arrives with a bag that is marked Girlfriend Body Parts, which is dripping blood, and says that she has been visiting some of Bruce's old girlfriends. To be continued. All right, so Batman Robin number 18. Okay, we, we said this before, so I don't want to really dwell on this a lot, but obviously Batman Robin has taken a different approach to uh, the book as a whole compared to what Grant Morrison was doing. That being said, I don't think this is a bad story, but I don't think it's really something that's going to be very memorable. I think it, it's an interesting story. I, I'm, I'm interested to see where it goes, but at the same time, it's not really something that I know is going to make a difference within the continuity of things. As for the art, Scott McDaniel, I think the art is great. I think it's a lot better than what he did in Detective Comics when he was working with David Hine for that uh, imposter Joker story. But with that, the art doesn't really make it that much better than it already is. It is a story that is interesting, but not memorable. So with that, I can only give it two and a half out of five batterings. Initially, I kind of was with Dustin on the whole, this not really meaning a whole lot to me. But especially after this issue, I'm really starting to enjoy this arc. This issue really picked things up for me. I really like the Una Nemo character, and I like her motive for actions, but also the actions she is undertaking, like going after some of Bruce's former lovers, I think are is is a lot of fun. And I think it's very hard to come up with a new villain that's gimmicks are worthwhile. But I think 
Cornell has done that very well. Uh, she has a very unique, and I think her look to her is extremely creepy. Um, and I think her backstory deals with one of Bruce's biggest problems in maintaining a social life, which isn't always easy for him. So I really like that dynamic about her character. I just think the story is like all good fun, and it's I think it's an enjoyable read. And while it still isn't Morrison, I think Cornell has maintained a lot of the previous ideas that were in the book before, where we're still getting quirky and strange yet very uh, intimidating and you know dangerous villain it's still maintaining that mood of insanity that i think a lot of the morrison stuff had and i think that's still all here uh and i think if this book is going to be successful those things have to be have to remain they have to maintain throughout whoever's on this title Scott McDaniel's artwork, again, I just think is really outstanding stuff. He isn't my favorite Batman artist, but I really appreciate his abilities to tell a story with the art and his consistency, along with the energy that he provides to the book. So I I don't think you can go wrong with him as an artist, especially with this story arc. I think he works. If you had somebody like, oh, I don't know, Sean Phillips doing this book, I don't think it'd be appropriate. So overall, I really like this issue, and I'm... I'm kind of on board with this now. It's not perfect, but not many stories are, so I just think it's a lot of fun. I'll give it four out of five batterings. Uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed this issue as well. I enjoyed it about as much as I enjoyed the last issue. I just really like how um, kind of the typical superhero kind of kind of feel it had to it. And uh, a lot like um, the last Batman issue, it just feels like it's, it's kind of back to basics. Um, I really I really like the premise, especially the ending. I thought that was really kind of freaky. And um, Scott McDaniel is always great. So I'll give this I'll give this four out of five better. I really enjoy it a lot. All right, and over on the website, Melinda gave it three and a half out of five batterings. So that is going to give Batman and Robin number 18, three and a half out of five batterings. Azrael number 15, written by David Hine, illustrated by Cliff Richards. This issue goes right into where last issue ended with the death of Michael Lane. Batman is asking how can he possibly how can he commit suicide and crucify himself? And we are introduced or reintroduced to Peter Frelli, his uh, partner in uh, the blues. Revealed in a flashback that Azrael goes back to his house and uh, requests for him to stab, not, not to stab him, but to help him crucify himself after he has stabbed himself in the chest. But before he does that, he gets Ferelli on his side by stabbing him with the, the blue fire sword. This pretty much convinces Ferelli, so he helps him crucify himself and says that everything will be alright. And after he was crucified on the church, lightning struck. He is clearly arrested and kicked out of the force for assisted suicide. So Batman goes to Lane's sister, former sister-in-law, Jenny, and tries to break the news that he is dead. But she is not only not surprised by this, but she's pretty nonplussed about it. She's not She's not happy, but she's she is smiling, which is very odd. It's revealed that Lane went to visit her before he went to do this, and he convinced her that it was it was the right thing to do through, through uh, his visions throughout the Suit of Sorrows. Dick is left very confused. We also see a flashback to where the two shared a night of passion, and it zoomed into Jenny's face, which looked to see another some sort of sign of, of revelation. Very strange stuff. We go to Gotham Police headquarters where Batman and Bullock are are examining the suit of sorrows. And Batman starts to hear some voices again from the suit. Before he goes down to the Batcave, he is attacked by the White Ghost. The White Ghost who has both a red flame sword and the blue flame sword. They have a brief scuffle before he jumps out of the window and escapes. Dick gets back to the Batcave and while he tells Bruce what he heard, Bruce tells him that he has worn the suit and not to listen to what it says. He then realizes that the suit of sorrows has been made from filaments instructed with a Lazarus pit, and we go to see McElaine's body being inspected by another than Rish Al Ghul, who says that he will, he will return to life in three days. And that was Azrael number 15. 
As for number 15, I, I'm interested to see how this is going to play out and how exactly this is going to end. It seems as if uh, the series is going to end in one of two ways based on the fact that we know it's going to end and this story arc is occurring. It's either going to be Michael Elaine does not raise back from the dead and he's not the son of Christ and that's just the way it ends up playing out or he will rise up and he'll just become part of Batman Inc. So one of those two things is going to occur. I'm not real sure how that's going to work if he does raise back from the dead, and I, I'm curious to see how in the world that's going to happen. The one thing that I have to say is Donovan made a point about uh, the end of the Night of Passion with his uh, sis- former sister-in-law. The sister-in-law, Jenny, had a revelation. I don't want to really foreshadow too much or predict what it, what could be, but I'm almost, I'm almost kind of curious and kind of thinking... That uh, somehow she gets pregnant and he ends up being the son of Christ. And then she's bearing another descendant of Christ. I, I just see something like that playing out. But maybe not in these next couple issues since it only has three issues left. But I don't understand what else she could be really thinking about afterwards. There was a reason why they shot him in her face. And it wasn't just because you know she was doing stuff with with him they're throwing some things here at the last minute they know the series is dying they're throwing some things in here to i guess make you really think i'm i'm enjoying it for the most part but i'm also kind of cautious because this series is going to end either really really badly it's really going to end either really badly or mediocre i don't think at this point it can end on a real high note so uh with this one i'm going to give it three out of five batterings I have to say that in regards to Cliff Richard's artwork, I actually really liked it here. I thought everything was pretty well laid out. I like his Batman. I thought there were some pages that were definitely better than others, especially the opening page. I really liked that nine-pedal grid. I thought that was well put together. I think the artwork captures that dark mood in this issue, so I thought it was pretty good. I actually kind of enjoyed this story, especially this issue. Maintaining that subject matter with Michael being a descendant of Christ is whatever. I kind of dismiss that. But I thought the way that David Hine chose to tell his story was really good. I liked that he used Detective Forelli and Jenny as the ways to describe the things that happened in using their point of view. I thought it was a really good uh, story tactic to get away. I think if you just would have done some flashback or something, it would have nearly been as interesting. Um, my only problem issue with this, again, is that Hine struggles to give Batman, in this case, Dick Grayson, a clear voice. And at the beginning, to me, it comes off as Bruce, but we know it isn't. But then he does have Batman make some mistakes and say some things later on the issue especially when he encounters white ghosts that make it clear that it's Dick Grayson. But it's not consistent in the issue. And the cliffhanger at the end with Michael Lane's body being in the hands of Ra's al Ghul and learning about the Lazarus Pit and its involvement has me interested in somewhat looking forward to the next issue. So I'm actually going to give this three out of five batterings. This is the first time where I've not hated an Azrael issue. I will dare say I've enjoyed it. I was complaining a few issues ago on how they're going to continue this uh, whole Jesus plot. And I, I have to give David Hine credit. He's taking it seriously. He's actually, like, giving it some real brevity. And um, it's not the best thing ever, but he's at least not ignoring it and just saying, whoa, whoa he's Bat- Batmanique now. Hooray. Yeah, no. No, it's, it's working pretty well. And um, I think that involving Rachel Ghoul is a very smart idea. I like how Bru- both Bruce and Dick are involved now. I thought this is a pretty, pretty decent issue. I can't really say anything bad about it at all. I thought Cliff Richards, he's certainly getting around as, as a Batman artist. <laughs> just like Michael Lane. And um, I think that um, he didn't add or subtract from this issue, but he, ma- he gave this, this certain atmosphere, which I thought was 
was pre pretty good pretty good for uh the issue not and i, I thought gillian march had was great artwork in the last arc but it also made the the story come off as a little too over the top whereas this one i felt was a lot more appropriate and a lot more it was a lot more nuanced i think and uh all that being considered i'll, I'll give this three and a half out of five batterings as rule number 15 is going to have three out of five batarangs. Moving into our next one, Batman Annual number 28. Written mostly by David Hine, uh, also Augustin Padella, Andreas Gilnado, Lorenzo Reguero all also work on this issue as well. So, what ends up happening? We pick up partially before Detective Comics Annual, where we see five days ago, the question's on a plane. She's walking around. She has the mark of Kane still on her face. Despite the fact that the Detective Comics, she has the mark removed. Or, it's not removed, but it's it's not showing anymore. Uh, she rendezvous with Batman, who tells her that needs her to infiltrate the Golden Portal and find out what she can about what's going on and why they're causing the riots inside the city of Paris. We then cut to where we already saw in Detective Comics, Renee meeting this woman, Corrigan, and we find out that she has the power of persuasion uh, through her voice. Um, and also, we find out that this creature, Corrigan, also can turn into a beast, and she tells her followers who are in the caves below what to do and who to kill. She, in turn, tells them to go kill Lenny Urbana. We then cut to where we kind of left off last time with the main story with Batman telling Nightrunner that uh, Urbana better not die because if she does it'll be his fault. Nightrunner we see going down and fighting the crowd along with both Batman, Dick and Bruce and at the end the uh, police end up trying to uh, beat up Nightrunner and Batman ends up preventing that from occurring. Then we cut to pretty much the next day I assume and the police commissioner for the French police is talking to Bruce Wayne and saying that last night was a nightmare, there was a riot that happened anyway, and Batman says, well, Night Runner's with us, and it could have been a lot worse if he wasn't with us. Bruce Wayne then says that Corrigan and the Golden Portal is the real reason that all this stuff has been happening, and the police commissioner says they have no proof. We then cut back to Renee and Corrigan. Renee is telling Corrigan that uh, she was sent by Batman, and there's this tracer that she was told to use once she knows what Corrigan's plan is. Corrigan believes the entire time that Renee is under her control, despite the fact that Renee is under her own control, and Corrigan leaves telling Renee to kill herself. Then the two Batmen and Night Runner come to a, a hatch above one of the underground caves and they need to go inside. Well, it turns out Night Runner is claustrophobic and can't go downstairs because he's afraid of small spaces and being closed in. The two Batmen take off, hand him a tracer and say, you can follow us, but you definitely need to get over your fears immediately. We then see Renee, who seems as if she's about to kill herself, but she has a bunch of flashbacks of all the different things that uh, make it more sense and her training from Richard Dragon overpowers it, and she appears to help Batman along with Night Runner, who eventually caught up, and the four of them take out this mob along with Corrigan. The question, in turn, also tells Corrigan, basically makes her feel as if she wants to kill herself. Corrigan gets taken to the French equivalent to the Arkham Asylum, which is called the Black Garden, where there's a number of other villains known as the Skin Talker, Sisters Crystal, Rayman, and Paradox, and she's in a room by herself. Bruce Wayne then tells the police commissioner that Night Runner is going to be the new Batman, and that story ends. We then cut to a completely different story where we see the Veil, 
which we haven't seen since last year, talking about different events occurring in Gotham City. To make the long story short, we see Leslie Tompkins help a thug who was hurt, and he is very ungrateful. It also turns out she helped a cop. She goes to check on the cop, and comes across the thug that she also helped, and the thug is going to kill her. The Veil calls Batman and tells Batman to come because somebody's going to die, and Batman's not going to get there in time, so what she does is she throws a cat off the roof. The cat gives just enough distraction for Batman to show up. Batman makes quick use, and Leslie Tompkins talks to the cop. That's the end of that story. We then cut to the last story, which is the Night Runner story, where Night Runner talks about how Bruce Wayne took him in, gave him new quarters, told him he, he's going to be Batman, new outfit, costume, new everything. Bruce leaves and tells him that Batman's going to train him. So Dick Grayson stays in Gotham and trains Night Runner. Batman then takes Night Runner in his civilian persona to the police commissioner and says, this is going to be our agent here in Paris. As it turns out, uh, Night Runner helps solve some of the problems, but the problem is that no matter which way he fights, it seems as if he's always going to be on one side or the other. On both, There's no way of being neutral and being on both sides. He starts to have doubts because at one point he takes a little too far and he accidentally snaps a guy's shoulder. And even though he's Middle Eastern and the Middle Eastern side seems to be fighting against him because he snapped the shoulder of one of those people. He starts to have doubts and Batman shows up and says, you know, this is uh, what's going to happen no matter what. It's taken a really long time for Batman to become who he is in Gotham City. It's only going to take time. But uh, Bilal gets a nice little uh, confidence boost when he sees two boys fighting over what appears to be a Night Runner mask. And that is the end of Batman Annual 28. Batman Annual number 28. Overall, I think it was interesting. The one thing that uh, I complained about with the Detective Annual was the time jumping that David Hine seems to do. There wasn't as much time jumping, it was really kind of in chronological order, but the issue with that was that Batman, with the question was that we already saw the fact that she didn't, she already had the sign of Cain dis, you know, it's not showing on her head anymore because she figured that out. So I don't understand why they brought that back. It just makes the, the, that little you know, side story that they had in Detective Comics kind of useless. I think the Veil story was really pointless. The Veil is a character that has an interesting backstory but is not used really at all very well. I think Night Runner is going to be interesting. The thing that I'm pretty confident in saying is that I don't believe Night Runner is going to be around. I don't think we're going to actually see some of these Batmen of other nations as uh, things go on. So with that, I'm going to give the Batman Annual 3 out of 5 batterings. I thought this was similar in quality to the Detective Annual we got earlier this month, and it should be because it was written by David Hine. Um, I think David Hine writes a, a great question, and it blows my mind sometimes when somebody writes a good question why she doesn't have her own title right now. But I also thought that Hine does a really nice job of selling the Batman Inc. concept in his own words. I do have to wonder, though, what... David Hines' obsession with religion and cross-branded on their face villains. Why he's so interested in this? I, 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 characters? I, I don't know. I think it works far better here than it did in Azrael, but it's still just a little strange to me. The Veil story, yeah, was pretty pointless. I don't think she's a very interesting character who hasn't really ever been written well, uh, but that's just me. However, I thought this was a really good issue. 
I like the Knight Runner character quite a bit. I'm interested in seeing more with that character. As for the artwork, I thought the main story's artwork wasn't very good. It just wasn't very compelling in comparison to the artwork for the other stories, which I liked a lot. Trevor McCarthy, who did the artwork in the Knight Runner story, look out for this guy. I think he's going to be more and more, more and more work in the future, and I really like his stuff. And our favorite, Ramon Box some artwork in this book and i really liked it i mean i was shocked when i saw his name and if he did that stuff more often all the time basically i would never complain about him so that was a really nice surprise solid stories for the most part with pretty solid artwork i'll give this three out of three and a half out of five batterings uh, I thought this was alright. I thought, yeah, I thought this was just like the detective annual that we reviewed last time. The big plus for me was Night Runner. I think it's a pretty cool concept, and I think that I like how they're 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 incorporating new allies for the Batman Inc. name in other titles instead of just Batman Inc. I think that's pretty cool. I thought the art was I thought the art was pretty solid. Um, I agree with like like some things like the Veil story was it didn't capture my interest, and um, the bits like the Mark of Cain on question were kind of I don't know they're. they're they kind of cancel each other out, so I'm, I'm going to give this a middle-of-the-road 2.5 out of 5 better ranks. All right, and over on the website, Eric gave the Batman Annual 3 out of 5 batterings, so that is going to give Batman Annual number 28 3 out of 5 batterings. So even in defeat, the detective manages to achieve some small measure of victory. As you said, detective, this is not over. Moving into our next book, Batman Orphans number two. Batman Orphans number two of two, written by Eddie Berganza, art by Carlo Barberi. This issue opens up with the last one, ended with Bruce Wayne and Crime Alley, hallucinating that he's seen, witnessing the death of his parents while he is a child in a Robin costume. He nearly kills the person he's up against, which is uh, Monica from uh, the Orphans team of sidekicks. But Alfred comes along and, and saps him out of it. We then see the, the group of orphans kind of converse inside their little quarters with Monica and Francisco getting very chummy until they are called for order. Uh, and the Batman leads them out, out into the tent. Um, also, Chris, Christmas Allen and Renee are on Twitter on the, on the case. We see Bruce and Tim at Arkham Asylum doing some homework on who was looking after these orphans, especially after the, the body of the dead Robin was found, while Dick is doing some reconnaissance work on Francesca. Then Dick, Tim, and Bruce all reconvene outside outside of Arkham, and, and they, also, they also find out that the doctor inside, Dr... Nagif, I believe his name was, had been working with Hugo Strange, and since Hugo Strange had a, a Batman fixation, thought he was Batman, they also explained that it's possible that he tried to become, he tried to bring about his own Robins as well. We see both the assassins or the mercenaries Merlin and Red Talon show up at the at the same district where the orphans show up, as well as Montoya and Chris Allen, and a big battle ensues, especially when the rest of the orphans show up and a big armored submarine cruiser type of vehicle. The battle gets completely out of hand as one of the orphans gets immolated and burned to death, while the shortest one in the glasses bookworm is pretty not plus about the entire thing. Monica, however, is freaking out, and Crunch tries to take control of the situation just by beating everybody up. Another one runs into what she thinks is the Riddler, who slices her neck and takes the fed leg package that everyone is going different boxes of chemicals and, and the serial compound venom. Other people, or everyone's starting to fight each other. Crunch has been shot. In a fit of rage, Monica goes after Bookworm, and Bookworm is shooting her. Merlin has been injured. It also reveals that Bookworm had been brothers with the Robin who had been killed in the previous issue. One of them asked if he's true. Bookworm electrocutes him to death. Um, 
Montoya and Chris Allen are running out of bullets and they're pretty much cordoned off by the bad guys. They're outnumbered, but they're by Batman, Robin, and Nightwing. Batman is, is uh, alerted by Oracle that there are different places around around the city being cordoned off by this everyone trying to find this compound. But other other members of Gotham Knights, such as the Birds of Prey and Batgirl, Spoiler and Huntress, are all taking care of that. The other orphans have run into the Batman that, that has instructed them to fight under the Robin name. And while Batman has put a tracker on, on one of them, uh, Francisco and Monica are speeding away as Monica is dying from, from a bullet wound from Bookworm. They go back into the Bat Grotto, and the new orphans, the ones that this Batman has riled up, are realizing the carnage that has, he has unleashed on Gotham. Bookworm returns and learns the truth that he's not really Batman and electrocutes him in enraged. Monica uh, gives Francisco a shot of venom, which turns him a bit insane and temporarily heals her from her bullet wound. She then goes to get revenge for one of their fallen, fallen comrades, Crunch, by kissing Bookworm and putting a razor blade into his throat. The real Batman shows up on the scene, and Francisco, in a complete rage over, over the death of Monica, goes after him, while the, the fake Batman has revealed to be, indeed, he goes strange. Batman and Francisco battle for a bit until Francisco has revealed that this is the real Robin, this is the real Batman, and that they've been leading alive this entire time. We cut back at an, or an orphanage where we see that Francisco is recovering from the effects of Venom. He doesn't even remember meeting Robin, the real Robin, would have recognized, and is playing basketball with Tim. Dick Grayson asks if Bruce ever regretted taking on other soldiers in his war against crime, and Bruce says he does, but he's also reminded there are good people in the world due to the likes of people like Dick and Tim. And that is where Batman Orphans number two ends. All right, Batman Orphans number two. As with Batman Orphans number one, it makes a little bit more sense, I guess, now that we've we've determined that the Batman who actually was keeping children in the sewer was actually Hugh Strange. But the issue with that is it's still pretty dumb. Yes, it's been a while since we've seen Hugo Strange in the book, so it did at least catch me off guard, the fact that, you know, the, the imposter Batman was Hugo Strange. But then again... One of the few things that Hugo Strange is known for is his obsession with Batman and his obsession with Bruce Wayne. So I, I don't think it was really that great. It was really, okay, so let's use a villain that we haven't used in a while and let's have him do exactly what he does every time. The only difference is he has this gang of fake Robins living in the sewers. I really didn't like the art style. Uh, I'm not a real big fan of this kind of style. It reminds me a lot of uh, Japanese anime and... I'm not a real big fan of that stuff either. The story overall was wasn't very good. the 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 real downfall of this was for three ninety nine, you get a issue that's forty issues, and if you would have gotten an issue that was twenty pages long, you would have paid two ninety nine. So I guess uh, you do get a little bit more for your money, but not really. It was almost as if it was there wasn't enough pages to make this an actual miniseries because twenty pages isn't really going to get you what you need inside of the book. I think uh, Eddie Berganza should stick to the editorial side of things and stay away from writing. Uh, one out of five bad ranks. Again, terrible opening with, uh, why do parents tell their kids not to be afraid of the dark? Why do they lie? Just laughable writing that isn't very funny, to me at least. I actually kind of liked Carlos Barberi's work a bit more here than I did like in the last issue. His style kind of grew on me with this. But with the story being so bad... I had to have something to latch on to with this book, um, but it is solid stuff. I feel like this was Eddie Braganza just wanting to write every character he possibly wanted. I mean, at one point this plot becomes a complete mess with 
this package that every villain and their mother is trying to show up and get. I mean, you have the Riddler, Ra's al Ghul, the Penguin, Crispin Allen, and Rin- Nae Montoya, who aren't villains, but they do show up in the book. Hugo Strange, Two-Face, Scarecrow, Merlin, Bane. And they're, they're like, they're way more than that. It just becomes way too excessive. And I feel like this book relied heavily on the... St- on these characters' star power to make it interesting and entertaining rather than telling a good story. Um, the ending is complete, completely rushed, and the big problem I have with the artwork is the layout of the book, which makes things seem so much more confusing than I think they have to be at times. I actually enjoyed this more than issue one. Uh, it still is absolutely atrocious, and uh, I will only be giving it one out of five batterings. I really tried to like this book because I love the art. It was a story told back in like the days where the, the, the status quo I'm used to, Dick Grayson's Nightwing, Tim Drake's Robin. So it, visually, it just looks very appealing to me. But the story, it's not really a story. It's just, first of all, it's a very ugly story. I mean, you have kids getting killed in like the worst way possible. Like being lit on fire, electrocuted, having their razor blades shoved down their throats. It's very, it's not just dark. It's just like ugly and cynical and... It's strange just for a mainstream DC comic book. And it's very hard to read. I, 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 as, much as, the, as much as I like the art, the panel layout and, the, and the, uh, just how, the way the story is told, there's way too much dialogue, way too much pointless dialogue with the characters. And if you couldn't tell, I, I really had trouble finding out what the plot, the plot of the story was. Um, so, I mean, that's just a huge, huge blunder towards the enjoyment of the entire issue, the, the entire miniseries. Um, I am glad that I, I had faith in the writer, and it was revealed that Batman wasn't really doing this. It was somebody else. But uh, be that as it may, it was still very, very haphazard. And I think this book had potential. It's an interesting premise, and I think it really could have been better told if it, I don't know, taken back to the drawing board. But as it stands, I'll have to give this two out of five veterans. All right, and on the website, Melinda gave it three out of five batterings. So that is going to give Batman Orphans one and a half out of five batterings. I believe you two know each other. Hey, what is this? The end of the show, when the fat bird sings. (laughs) Let's move into our next book, Batman Incorporated, number two. Batman Inc. number two, written by Grant Morrison with artwork by Yannick Paquette. The issue picks up where the last issue ended. Batman and Jiro are fighting off Lord Deathman's henchmen, while Catwoman and Misaki remain wrapped around the tentacles of the giant squid on the floor below. However, with the help of some exploding batarangs, which breaks the glass windows, the water comes falling out of the shattered windows, and Catwoman is able to grab a hold of the unconscious Misaki, and they are rescued, leaving the giant squid hanging out of the window. Jiro then explains to Batman and Catwoman that he has he was more than just a sidekick or body double to Mr. Unknown, but really he, he was replacing him due to the fact that the original Mr. Unknown was almost 56 years old. He says he will accept Batman's offer, but Batman reminds Jiro that he used a gun, and rule number one is no guns. We then cut to two doctors who are examining and operating on the body of Lord Deathman when suddenly Lord Deathman awakes and murders the two doctors while his henchmen rush into the hospital with their guns ablaze. And Lord Deathman suits up and they detonate a bond, distracting the police and make off for a quick getaway. We then cut to Batman and Catwoman as they race to stop Lord Deathman as he makes his way to kill the Poseidon female hero known as Shiny Happy Aquazon. We then cut to Jiro as he dresses himself into the Mr. Unknown costume. We then cut to Lord Deathman as he his car flying into the window of a building and he begins shooting civilians. However, Batman catches up and is able to hop onto the car and as it goes through the building on and onto the public subway and Lord Deathman is fighting off Batman when the car drives off the top of the subway car and into the building where Aquazon is. Luckily for her, Jiro comes swinging in and grabbing her just before Lord Deathman's car comes flying 
onto the scene. And Jiro sends some flying darts at an attacking Lord Deathman, and Batman is able to fight him off. And because Batman knows he won't stay dead, he throws him from the top from the rooftop where Lord Deathman lands onto ground, left for dead for now. We cut back to Jiro, who we see is dead as Lord Deathman fired several bullets into his chest before Jiro threw the darts. And while the world thinks Mr. Unknown is dead, through a conversation between Bruce and Selina, we learn that he has simply faked his own death to start fresh. And we see him being inducted into Batman Inc. And we see Jiro in the Batman costume fighting a villain in Japan. And next issue, Batman in El Gacho, Scorpion Tango. Batman Inc. number two. Um, overall, I thought this was very enjoyable. Definitely, Grant Morrison's taking a much different approach with Batman Inc. than he did with Batman Robin. It's a much less serious, but I, I find that to be a little bit, in, little bit more enjoyable. Um, the last couple issues of Batman Robin were jam-packed with all kinds of dark and emotion-filled pages, and this is really just fun and uplifting, and there's action, of course. Of course, there's going to be some action, but there's... Just overall, a lot of really interesting stuff going on. I like the inclusion of another Japanese hero, uh, Akuzan. Even though it's probably somebody we'll never hear about ever again, it was kind of interesting to see. But the big thing was, it was a little difficult to determine whether or not at the very end of the issue when Euro is taking, Euro is in the Batman costume, whether or not he the three months has passed or not. I assume at this point the time has passed. So I guess that's a that's a good thing. And uh, we have a Batman now in Japan and in France, soon to be in Argentina as well. So Batman Inc. number two, I'm going to give I'm gonna give four out of five batterings. Again, I thought this was a really fun issue. I I thought the Lord Deathman villain was a really cool and entertaining character and I'm sure it seems like Grant Morrison leaving him the way he did maybe has plans for him in the future again which I look forward to. I also really like the fact that Morrison calls back to the original appearance of Lord Deathman in the original Batmanga and referencing that story in one of the panels. I liked the twist with Jiro faking his own, his own death because it to, I honestly till I kept reading it had me completely fooled. I thought he was dead. Yannick Paquette Again, I just I love his artwork. It's so full of energy and it's complementing the writing so well. It's pretty close to perfect. I don't have a lot of complaints about this. I thought the dialogue was really well written. Interesting to me that with all the titles that are with Batman Inc. in one way or another, it's interesting that Batman Inc. isn't taking itself as seriously as everything else all these other books seem to be. And when I see someone else with a Batman costume on like we do at the end of this issue. It fits within this book. Whereas in the recent annuals, even with it being like Dick and Bruce together in the same panel and you have multiple Batman, it is a bit uncomfortable. Whereas here it just works and I think it has to do a lot with the tone and mood that is being set up in these stories. I thought it was a very good first arc to this run and I think this book can only get better in 2011. But uh, overall, great issue, ton of fun, four out of five batterings. This was another fun issue, excellent artwork. One of the things I, I thought was a little odd was the voice of Batman, Bruce Wayne, I mean. He says kind of like really arch lines, like, I know, I, I, I don't know, it felt really weird to me. It, it, it seemed kind of like, I don't know, he was going a little too much for that old school 60s vibe about, it's, you know, it's, it's a funky superhero story, so you don't take it yourself very seriously. Zach hit upon the fact that I think that may be a little a bit of a problem because if the main brunt of the whole uh, story arcs, Batman Inc., is kind of kind of taking itself in a lighthearted manner, then doesn't that sort of invalidate like the entire status quo? Or not, not really invalidate, but sort of make, 
I don't know. It seems like all that all that effort just to go for a little bit seems really weird to me. And also at the very, very I was really digging this issue, but the very end, after all this, after all these months, we were saying, well, they're, they're probably going to dress in the Batman suit, and here Jiro ends up doing that. He's not, he's not Mister Unknown. He's, you know, Japanese Batman. I just thought that was just still lame. I, I really, and it's the thing I had with, with both Detective and Batman annuals. I don't want to, I do not want to see more than one Batman hopping around fighting crime just, just like that's just too strange to me. And I know it's totally, it's total bias due to how I came up with the character, but. Seriously, I mean, I'm not seeing much just justification for it, and I really wish it was just Mr. Unknown with, with a bat symbol somewhere on his costume. But no, it's guy in a Batman suit. And if that's the way it's going to be, either I'm going to take a long time to get used to it, or it's just going to be drawing for me every issue. But this was a really good issue for the most part. I'm giving this four out of five batarangs. So that's going to give Batman Incorporated number two four out of five batarangs. Okay, let's go. If you can't suit up quickly at home base, I'm concerned how you would handle it in the field. Perhaps he's primping. As I recall, Master Richard spent nearly half an hour admiring his reflection the first time he donned his cape. Jason, get on out here or I'm going on patrol without you. <laughs> gotcha! Would've, if I hadn't seen you slip behind the computer banks three minutes ago. Nah, I got you. How does it feel? <laughs> it feels awesome! Check me out! I'm Robin, the Boy Wonder! Are you kidding me? This rocks! Come on, old man. We've got bad guys who need chasing. This is the best day of my life. Let's move into our next book. Batman Streets of Gotham number 18. Now, as I mentioned earlier when we were talking during the uh, news portion of the podcast, this is another one of those issues where suddenly the uh, main feature is not as long as it should have been. Co-feature is actually just as long as the main feature. The name of the main feature is The Bedbug's Bite, Chapter 3 of The House of Hush, written by Paul Dini, art by... Dustin Wen. Turns out Bruce Wayne, for some reason, is back in Gotham, and he is... It's right around New Year's Eve. There's this giant flash mob that's uh, happening, and there's half-naked people walking all over the place. And it turns out they start stealing stuff and breaking things, but the police can't do anything because it's all non-violent. Well, as it turns out, they're all under the control of the bedbug. So Batman comes down, talks to Commissioner Gordon. They play some kind of sound over sound disc, I guess. Some kind of sound equipment on a vehicle. And everybody suddenly is fine. Um, They all awake from their slumber. They have to be given a spray on their neck in order to remove the infection that they had from the bedbug. During this little encounter, there was a little bit where Penguin, Batman sees Penguin out stealing something and Penguin is in a... uh, pair of pajamas and uh, night stocking so Batman takes a picture of that that was kind of amusing we then uh, cut to Batman who's found out where exactly the bed bug is he uh, follows the bed bug the bed bug seems to be very fast Batman tries to remove the bed bug's mask when nothing but bed bugs cover Batman we then cut to Tommy Elliott talking to Pierce and he's talking about how Bruce Wayne suddenly decided to sober up and took a fondness to uh, Martha Kane uh, we then see Tommy Elliott in his whole hush get up saying that uh, they're there to meet somebody and his sources are never wrong and they're there to meet Dr. Death so that ends that that uh, story we then cut to the Ragman co-feature which starts off with right where we left off in the last issue with Roy Reagan going down to the harbor to pull a girl who commits suicide and bring her to the morgue. 
Once she's at the morgue, we see a uh, flash to the mayor of Gotham City, Hardy, Mayor Hardy, uh, talking to his assistant about how it's only a matter of time before Robinson, the Robinson area falls and they can redistrict everything and make it the way they want. Ragman is out and about trying to find out about the arsonist, but at the same time he's thinking about the, uh, the girl who he found he had to take to the morgue because of his day job. We then see Firefly, who's tied up two people inside of a building, created basically an explosion. Turns out he's in a building that is none other than the Gotham Fire Department, the old Gotham Fire Department, and Ragman figures it out, gets there, but can't figure out in enough time, and has no choice but to jump from the building. He does not save the two people, and he does not catch Firefly. He falls into the Gotham River, and uh, a lot of his suit burns. The building burns, and burns, and burns. Firefly was smart enough to also chain up the fire to fire hydrant so there was no way that they could get the, fire the water to the fire. So they take out buckets, but it does not really work. The next morning, Mayor Hardy happens to be in Gotham, down in Robinson Park, or Robbinsville. Yet again, basically the mayor states that uh, the whole reason everybody in Robbinsville likes Robbinsville is because they're taking advantage of the taxpaying citizens of Gotham. Roy Reagan says, no, that's not true. And there's a little scuffle where Roy Reagan just puts his hand in front of the mayor and his assistant says, don't touch him. And they get it all on camera. Next we see Roy Reagan, who happens to touch the uh, the cloth that the assistant's wearing, he sees a bunch of flashes of the assistant seeing, having the whole discussion about remaking the city, getting rid of Robbinsville, hiring Firefly through Alice, Alice Sin uh, from Arkham Asylum, and he sees all that and doesn't know what he should do next. Um, after that, he goes back to his job, and he sees on the news that uh, he's being accused of hitting the mayor, and that is the end of the co-feature. Alright, so Batman Streets of Gotham number 18, Overall, I thought the, the first part of the story by Paul Dini was interesting. It just, this solidifies the, the reason of why this book is being canceled. The fact that it can't even really take up the entire, that it's, or the amount of pages it's supposed to is really the main issue here. Because after January, the co-features are going to disappear, so what's going to happen? How is Paul Dini going to continue to put out this book? and stay on as the writer if he can't even make a, a book the entire, you know, he can't even make the story the amount of pages that it's supposed to be. It's really because of that, that and the fact that the co-features have really been taking, you know, a lot of the slack that Paul Dini has been leaving on this book, and the fact that the co-features are disappearing is really why this series is going to end. DC just can't guarantee that this book is going to be able to keep going on. And I th honestly think Paul Dini doesn't even know that that's the, really the reason. So um, the co-feature, I'm I'm enjoying the Roy Reagan story and the Ragman story. Ragman's one of those characters where you, you don't really know a whole lot about unless you really are involved in more of the whole DC universe. I find it very interesting. I know not a lot of people do, but I find it interesting. I really, really enjoy the art that's in the Ragman story. I also really enjoy, obviously, Dustin Wynn's art as well. Um, so overall, the, the issue as a whole, uh, I would give four out of five batterings. Yeah, Dustin Gwynn is terrific as usual. I I will say he really is only the only constant that's been on this title through its publication. It was cut short by the Ragman Co. feature, and that's probably so that they can wrap this thing up once it ends in January. But also with this being a book that looks like it's going to be ending, I, I think Genie and DC may be trying to pace this out so that they have enough story to finish the book off with 
especially this arc with issue 21 or whatever it is which i, I think makes sense to an extent but at the same time it is it, it is kind of ridiculous i can appreciate a villain like bedbug but at this point i really just want to get on with the hush storyline which for the 11 pages that the main story was in in this title really took a back seat um i thought the bedbug bit was fun but let's just get the hush already i like that dr death has been once again revived uh that's really intriguing me and Deanie has kind of re i'm perked perked my interest in this book again i thought the co-feature was really sharp uh love the artwork who uh the artist simon simon kudransky or whatever you, however you pronounce his name is another one of those new artists to the bat books that i hope we see more of seems like he's been getting assignments scattered here and there i thought there's good character development with Rory here so because the co-feature was actually really good i wasn't irritated with the main feature being cut short i will say that i i am glad to read a bat book isn't really addressing batman inc in any way um, in some ways, that's distracting, but I, while I like Bat- the Batman Inc. concept, I was kind of hoping that most of these books really wouldn't dive into it. And it seems like besides Detective and Streets of Gotham, Gotham that's, which is ending soon, all the other books are playing some kind of role in it. I just don't think there was enough material in this issue to give it a really high a rate, rating. A lot didn't really happen in the main feature, and the co-feature... Some stuff did happen, but that's not – I shouldn't be judging a book on its co-feature. I mean that is a problem right there, um, and I did like it, but this book lacked material, so I'm only going to give it three and a half out of five batterings. Uh, once again, I agree. I'm giving it three out of five batterings. Again, like I said, Streets of Gotham, it's either – it's either it's a pretty solid book. Uh, as I said before, Dustin Wynn's been on every issue, I believe, and doing some great stuff. But the writing content is so inconsistent. Um, I, I I agree too. Like like I want Hush. Um, Bedbug is okay. It didn't didn't really leave an impression on me. I want this Hush story to, to continue and to end because I want to see where it goes. It was such an excellent story done in Heart of Hush that Streets of Gotham sort of became uh, the build up to that sequel, the sequel to Heart of Hush. And I thought that the background with um, Bruce's parents that they've been doing the last couple of issues has been interesting. So when half the issue is a co-feature and one issue in, in, uh, gives that Two-Face story, takes up the entire issue, that's just very disingenuous. And it really proves why this book really should be canceled. I mean, I love Paul Dini, but it's, he's not been doing too much work to uh, justify its existence. So I'm leaving at uh, three out of five better ranks. All right, and on the website, the book was reviewed by Eric, and he gave it three out of five batterings, and Riddle Me This also reviewed it and gave it three out of five batterings. So that is going to give Streets of Gotham, number 18, three out of five batterings. In the great hall of the Justice League, there are assembled the world's four greatest heroes, Created from the cosmic legends of the universe, Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman, Aquaman. Those three junior super friends, Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog. 
their mission to fight injustice, to right that which is wrong, and to serve all mankind. So let's move into our last book, Superman Batman number 79. Superman Batman number 79, written by Chris Robertson with artwork by Jesus Marino. This is World's Finest Part 1, and these are the DC 1 million versions of the characters. So our story takes place one million years into the future, which is the 853rd century. The issue opens with the villain Epoch, who is a time traveler who is imprisoned by Batman and the mechanical version of Robin on the Asylum planet. However, it seems that Epoch has wanted to be imprisoned all along. And while the mechanical Robin is reading Epoch his rights, Epoch destroys the robot and Epoch runs off looking for the Batcave. He reaches the entrance and due to his knowledge of history, because he is a time traveler, he is able to gain access to the Batcave, where inside he puts on a poly-alloy battlesuit, which apparently is what he was looking for. Batman then appears and tells Epoch that it isn't much without the use of the control core and epoch then reveals that he is he in fact has the control for and uh starts up the suit um and when he goes when batman goes to stop him it's activated and we cut to space where the suit must have teleported epoch to the justice league headquarters while inside he is looking for his things when batman begins to wage a war with epoch through the use of some exploding batterings however batman is unable to stop epoch who makes off with the anti-hourglass that he was after epoch then teleports to the fortress of solitude and enters but is confronted by superman and batman Epoch is shocked by this, being as, in regards to time, they should have not been there. Instead of fighting Batman and Superman, Epoch has the anti-hourglass and escapes into the Chrono Cube. And with the cube, Epoch returns to the 21st century, apparently to rule it. But the current versions of Superman, Batman, and Robin confront him and look to stop him. And that's to be continued. All right, Superman Batman number 79. I think, uh, again, this is one of those issues where over a year ago they talked about how, oh, Superman Batman is now going to take ideas from past uh, storylines and story arcs, tell a different type of story based on something else. So, obviously, this is from DC 1 million that happened years ago. It's interesting. Um, you really have to appreciate more of the whole DC universe, more so than just the Batman universe, really, to appreciate this book. But I, I thought it was an interesting story, but yeah, it's not really something that I would enjoy, and I don't think people who are strictly within the Batman universe would either. So I'm going to give this three out of five batterings. I really liked DC One Million when it was when it was out, and I thought it was really cool that we get to revisit that. One of the things, though, that I do have a problem with is, if I remember correctly, I thought DC told us when Judd Winnick was coming out of the book that this Superman Batman was going to come into continuity, and that was the case apparently for two issues, and now we're back to all sorts of you know different stuff here and there. But I do think this is a really clever idea, and I did I do like reading all these kind of futuristic takes on these characters. However. I think this book may be a bit too smart for its own good. I don't think it's I think it's a little confusing. It's hard to kind of get behind and I felt like the characters here were really empty to me. And last time I checked, Christopher Nolan didn't write this. So uh anyway, but I did really like getting to see all the trophy rooms of Batman and the JLA and Superman and I liked that when Epoch is going through these trophy rooms, he is poking fun of, at these her- heroes. Um, you know, why do they have so many trophy rooms? Jesus Moreno and art, I don't really know that he is the right artist for this kind of story, meaning I don't know that his style really works with the futuristic backdrop, but I think his work has a lot of energy, and I thought it was well laid out and well designed and really helped the reader 
keep the story in front of them and keep and instead of it going completely over your heads because I think it is really hard to kind of just jump into reading this unless you know anything about DC 1 million. I did like his artwork. Epoch is an interesting villain. I think it was a smart villain for this kind of story, but I wish we would have got a bit more of Superman and Batman in this issue because it really does focus on his character more so than theirs. And for a two-issue arc, I feel like he is really going to dominate the story, and I kind of wanted to see more of Batman and Superman in their DC 1 million incarnations. But I did really like this. I think this is a Superman-Batman story worth reading. I think it's very smart. I think it's clever. I like the DC 1 million concept a lot. And the artwork is pretty good for the most part, so I'll give this 3.5 out of 5 Batarangs. I thought the artwork was amazing in this issue. It reminded me of the of Adrian Saez's art on Birds of Prey, but even here with the colors, it felt a lot more fluid, and um, I really, really enjoyed it. I thought that was the best part of the issue. But I, I like the story as well. DC 1 million, I, I remember when that came out, how crazy that kind of thing was. But uh, it felt natural here. I, I really liked seeing the One Million versus of Batman and Superman together. Though I do agree, it would have been nice if the, the story was more about them than Epoch. Um, though I, I, I enjoyed this issue for what it was. I thought it was pretty cool. And I love the ending where it showed the... Um, the, the It seemed like the Bronze Age version of the characters. Because you had Superman, Batman, and apparently Dick Grayson's Robin. So that, that was kind of cool. Um, I enjoyed this issue pretty well. So I, I'll give this a strong 4 out of 5 better ranks. Alright, and on the website, Dark Knight Dave gave it 3.5 out of 5 better ranks. So that is going to give Superman Batman number 79 3.5 out of 5 better ranks. So that's all of our comic reviews. So let's throw over to Nick with Bat Books for Beginners. Welcome back to Batman Books for Beginners. My name is Nick, and today I'm looking at a story called Oracle Year One. This is a short story, one of three, that was contained in one single issue of a series called The Batman Chronicles. That was issue number five. This was released in summer 96. I thought it was worth doing this short story as a bridge from where we last saw Barbara Gordon in The Killing Joke, where she was brutally paralysed from the waist down. Here we see how she's developed since that tragedy. The story is written by John Ostrander, who has worked on The Spectre, Suicide Squad and Justice League, and is also co-written by Kim Yale, who was married to Ostrander, as well as a well-established writer in her own right. The art's provided by Brian Stelfries, who's worked on Shadow of the Bat, and also a teamwork effort with Carl Story, who's worked on Nightwing, so they did the art together. So there was a lot of people involved with this very short story. It's only 20 pages long. So let's find out how has Barbara reacted to this new stage of her life. Past tense. 
Barbara spends her last night in hospital after the brutal attack from the Joker. She is soon to be moved home. Batman comes to visit her to tell her that he has caught the Joker, which is no consolation to Barbara. Once she has returned home, she's severely depressed. She feels defenseless and is losing the will to live, but she fights on and learns self-defense techniques from Richard Dragon, an acquaintance of Bruce Wayne, and begins to use her computer skills to track down a dangerous money launderer called Interface, who's been uh, dodging Commissioner Gordon and his squad. And Barbara manages to put Interface out of business. She does this as her new alias, Oracle, an alias she creates after a dream involving a Greek oracle. She now realises she still has a role to play, and even without her legs, can be a strong force to be reckoned with. I thought there were some very interesting points that came up in this very short story. First of all, the Joker caused all this pain to Barbara, but it was only done to get to Batman. This didn't go down well with Batgirl. She realised she was just a pawn used to weaken Batman by the Joker. I thought the guilt that Batman must be feeling is just immeasurable. And Barbara said that even as Batgirl, she felt she was perceived as a weaker version of Batman. That may be true. It is possible. Um, And maybe she needs to step out of the bat shadow and take up her own persona, which, of course, she does go on to do. Barbara mentioned uh, the Joker and Batman had a private joke, uh, as we saw at the end of The Killing Joke, when Batman grabs the Joker and they laugh together in a very mysterious way. And Bruce sheds no light on the subject of that joke which is a little bit frustrating because it's a strange part of the killing joke, one that maybe we could do with a little bit more uh, light on the subject. I thought it was a great moment when uh, Barbara was trying to get into the car. It really showed how much effort that is for her now and how she took her legs for granted and how difficult life becomes when you get put in a wheelchair. I thought it really, really uh, emphasised her struggle and uh, you can see why she became so depressed immediately after the attack. But of course, coming out of depression is is a very interesting story story for Barbara, and it really shows how strong-willed she is and what a great character she is. And I thought going into the internet world and having your own avatar as she did as Oracle was uh, interesting to see Barbara do. We haven't really seen her do a lot of that in the past in the books. But um, delving into the computer world and using her skills was quite impressive, and I think it's a good way for the character to... uh, to be used and and to still interact with uh, the Batman family. I'd like to have seen more of her martial arts training uh, that that Barbara did while she was in the wheelchair. There wasn't really a lot spoken about that. We met the character very early, you know, fairly early on, and then we saw that he said she had done everything that she could have done with him. So I thought that was a bit brief, but again, that might just be because the story was so short they couldn't fit it all in. But I would have liked to have seen more of that. Uh, I thought the origin of the name Oracle was quite interesting as it came through a dream that Babs had uh, with the Greek Oracle and um, I thought it was quite interesting to see where she got this name from. Uh, I thought the art was really good. It was very stylish, uh, detailed in some areas and the colours were used well. Uh, Babs also looked a lot more mature in this story than, ev- than even in the killing joke when we last saw her or, or as Batgirl in the past, indicating that the character has grown up 
and uh, has moved on into a new stage of her life. Of course, it's very sad to see the original Batgirl go, but we now have a reborn character in Oracle, a new character, and even though many fans are unhappy at what happened to Babs, I'm always for story progression and developing your characters, like, for instance, Jason Todd being killed. Those big events, I think, keep the books interesting, uh, as we've had recently in Batman Inc. Uh, And this is a major one in the Batman family. Barbara losing the use of her legs. Major event. And it's tragic, but um, I think it's quite an interesting moment in Batman history. So I really like this short story. As I said, it's only 20 pages, and I'm surprised DC hasn't devoted more time in the books to Barbara's transition from uh, Batgirl to Oracle, and I'd love to see more of it. Um, I believe this is the only part that we ever see. Next time we see Barbara, she'll probably be well into her Oracle role. Uh, I would have liked to have seen more of her... her strength in in coming over that tragedy and and moving on. So as I said, it's a very small story, but it really adds some depth to Babs, I think, and it shows how strong she is as a character, and it further improves the character in my eyes. Uh, One who was already very high up there, I thought she was great as Batgirl, really enjoyable to read, and I hope she continues to be as Oracle, but I'm just worried at the limitations that writers are going to have to deal with from now on. So I'll be giving the story 4 out of 5, and the only reason I'm not giving it 5 is really just because I wanted the story to be longer. At least an issue's worth, rather than a portion of one issue. I would have liked, I think she deserved more than that. So 4 out of 5 from me, very short story, but I think it adds a lot to her, so go and check it out. Chill, Batman. I sent up a flare. Robin's on his way. Oracle. Way ahead of you, Wingnut. I've alerted Commissioner Yen and Chief Bennett that the pilots headed their way. They've evacuated the airport and their men have the place surrounded. So that was Oracle Year One, and we now have a new uh, character into the in the Batman universe. Same character, new persona. But uh, don't think that's it. We're getting more characters arriving very quickly. Next, we've got a book called Batman, A Lonely Place of Dying, which collects Batman 440 through to 442 and the new Titans 60 through to 61. Traumatised by the death of Robin, Jason Todd, the Dark Knight detective descends into a brutal existence, but this blind quest for retribution has extremely hazardous mental and physical consequences, as a careless and unhinged Batman suffers injury after injury. Deducing the connection between Bruce Wayne and Batman, as well as the repercussions that the murder of the boy Wonder are having on him, a teenage Tim Drake seeks out Dick Grayson, the original Robin, in a desperate attempt to reunite the dynamic duo. An emotional and intense adventure are coming up. And get ready for the third Robin. Yes, he's on his way, Mr. Tim Drake. So look forward to that next time. I've been Nick, and now I'll send you back to Dustin and the guys. Bye. Oracle, once Batman's protege, Batgirl. She was caught in the crossfire of the war between Batman and Joker. Now she fights crime a different way. A master of the cyber realms and trainer to heroes. All right, so that was Bat Books for Beginners. Be sure to pick up the next book for the next episode in two weeks. 
Let's get into what we will be covering next time on the podcast. Next time we will be covering Batman the Dark Knight number one, Detective Comics number 872, Gotham City Sirens number 18, Azrael number 16, Batman Beyond number one, and Batman Confidential number 52. So only a couple books next time. A lot of these books that we've been covering, a lot of the stuff's been dying down, so we're not getting a lot of miniseries and one-shots and stuff like that since the holidays are over with. So we might go back to a normal runtime on the episode. With that, uh, make sure you're checking out the Batman Universe podcast. Uh, We are going to be, on the next episode, we will be uh, discussing our 2010 award show, which, in fact, will have huge comics presence, so you can make sure you check that out to find out who the nominations are, and then you can go over to the website and place your votes once the nominations are revealed. On top of that, you can... Email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And you can check out the website for daily news and join the forums to talk with other Bat fans about all the latest events. So that's everything for this episode. This is Dustin. This is Zach. And this is Don. You've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Take care. Happy New Year and stay warm. like you're on a moving train now. Oh, Where, oh, oh. I could, I'm, my I'm my audio is screwed up when you guys were talking. So, my, you uh, hear I'm, me at, or... I'm at Starbucks. For some reason, my internet went out a couple hours ago, so I, I trolloped down here to Starbucks. and uh, I'm next to the parking lot, so the car just pulled out. So, uh... <laughs> oh, so you're sitting outside of Starbucks <laughs> with your laptop yeah, just... talking to us. Yeah, my <laughs> freezing because the chairs are cold. I work hard for you people. This is so strange. <laughs> I'm hearing live traffic right now. It's Alright. Did you seriously just leave your laptop sitting in the parking lot? Oh, how awesome would it have been if somebody would have picked up and stole it, and we would have got all of that audio on the on the thing. Oh, man. Hey, look at this laptop. Let's get it. <laughs> I'll take the only other shit. <laughs> yes, I did. And I'll do it again. Okay. okay. No, I wouldn't. All right, all right, all right. All right. Hang on a second. I have to go run to the grocery store really quick, and I don't have a choice. I, like, have to go now. Um... It's probably going to take me like 10 minutes. So, what are we going to do here? It sounded like you were surrounded by Ewoks there, Don. At one point. <laughs> There's a family with ch- there was a family with children. Yeah. <laughs> Ewok children. Yeah.